covering at least one book every sermon. Today we have two books, and we're one book from the end of the Old Testament. So today we're looking at Haggai and Zechariah. Find your Bible, go to the New Testament, turn backwards a few pages, and you'll be there. We're just right at the end of the Old Testament. Zechariah and Haggai. Haggai and Zechariah. I want to take a minute just to say acknowledgments to some scholars. These names here, Ralph Smith, Mike Butterworth, F.F. Bruce. When you're studying for sermons and you think some guy spent his whole life on the details of this one little book, or sometimes some guy spent his whole life putting together this dictionary that references all of these things in the Greek and all of these things in the Hebrew, and now I can just click on it, and there it is. And I say, Lord Jesus, I know he's dead, but can you tell him thank you for me? <laughs> Sometimes I'm in my office, I say, Lord, just, he's in heaven with you somewhere, right? Just tell him he did a good job. And uh, we are so blessed by, so a lot of what I bring you um, I have been reading and listening to these two books since before Christmas, over and over and over. And Zechariah especially is incredibly difficult to know, what are we going to do with this in 25 minutes on a Sunday morning? And that's how this sermon series has been, that instead of speaking on one paragraph and spending an hour on one paragraph and all of our thoughts... We have little time for our thoughts because we need to cover a whole lot of scripture, and that's probably a good thing. And so what I'd like to do today is lay out a bit of information about these two books so that in your own time, when you're reading them or listening to them, you have a little bit of context of how to think about it, where it fits in history. But I also want to give us time in Zechariah today to just skip through God's word. I'm just going to read a little bit from each of these chapters and just let God's word touch you. So for an introduction there, let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is alive and active. And we have a privilege today of learning about Haggai and Zechariah in that context. But we ask, Lord, that you would again refresh us and fill us, even as we've been hearing testimonies as we sit in your presence in prayer, but we sit in your presence under your word, and we ask, Lord, that you would instruct us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So these two prophets, Haggai and Zechariah, the time period of Ezra. You might remember, if you were here that Sunday, that Ezra was one of the men who led a group of people out of Babylon out of uh, Persia at the end of 70 years of captivity to come back and resettle. And he came along with some government grants and they began to rebuild. We pick up this story 15 years after that beginning, or we should say from Haggai, 15 years earlier before Haggai and Zechariah, we're reading about how in Ezra's time, Joshua and his fellow high priest and Zerubbabel, this would be the grandson of the last king of Israel that was deported. Now he comes back and 
Babylon says, let's have that guy be the governor, but probably more like the mayor, because it's a small area, right? Not even the GVRD, it's just the mayor of Vancouver. So the fellow priest and the mayor, the fellow priest and the governor, they started to rebuild the temple. But of course, the other lands around who had been making this their home for the last 70 years, they started to have opposition and they brought it to a halt. They did a bunch of lies and smear campaigns and fake news stuff and they brought the temple building to a halt after they had barely gotten started. 15 years later, we pick up the story now, through the faith-filled preaching of Haggai and Zechariah, suddenly they start rebuilding and in a very short time they finish their temple. And here's a verse from uh, Ezra. Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews, and then Zerubbabel and Joshua set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. Well, what happens? A bunch of opposition again. The same guys 15 years before are saying, what? No way. We made them stop. This isn't fair. We're going to stop them again. But there's a problem. There's a new king in Persia named Darius. That's all right. We're going to write to him letters like we did the last guy. And so they write letters and they do their smear campaign and they put out their fake news and it goes off and they wait for the answer back. And lo and behold, the answer back was, Darius says, I did a search of all the information and guess what I found out way back when Cyrus said that we're supposed to help build this. You guys better stop harassing them and furthermore, I want you to pay for the temple and the sacrifices and a whole bunch of stuff out of the royal treasuries. So they came back with unlimited grant money from the government unlimited grants going on, and decrees that went on to say, and if you don't do this, we're going to tear your, your house apart, and we're going to impale you on one of the beams. There, have that. And so, then Ezra concludes in chapter 6, the elders and the Jews continued to build and prosper under the preaching of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, and they finished the temple according to the command of God, and the decrees of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. God did it, and he used three kings to do it. And he did it through and during the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. So it's in that context that you then say, what were they preaching about? Like, this is the end of 70 years. They've had 15 years of everybody saying, I ain't doing that again, too much opposition. Too many things going on. Cancel culture knocked us out. Not going to say a word. Nope. And suddenly, two preachers come on and everything changes. What are they preaching about? Haggai, we might say, well, actually, we're going to quickly... Ooh, where's the next screen? Next one? All right, just leave that for a moment. <laughs> Today, we would break this two books into four sections. Haggai, he's asking, is now the time for your personal gain? Zechariah, the first part of the book is eight visions that he has and a bunch of oracles that go with it during the time of the rebuilding. And then we have the last part of Zechariah. We don't know the time period. We just know that all of these things are said and there are these beautiful prophecies about fasting, battles, leaders, and God's glory. And when we read the book of Zechariah, we suddenly start thinking, I heard this before, I heard this before, I heard this before, because it's all over the New Testament. And lots of quotes from Zechariah are found in the New Testament. 
Let's go to Haggai, next slide. Haggai, we might sum up by a page and a half. I know your digital doesn't look like that, but in the Bible, it's a page and a half. A page and a half of the people saying it's not time to rebuild, God saying, who says it's not time to rebuild? And God saying, is this the time for you to prosper and forget about the kingdom? And then it ties in with basically what Matthew said, seek first the kingdom and all these things would take care of itself as well. Just a few quotes. If we just look at verse 2 from Haggai. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourself to be living in paneled houses while the house remains in ruin? Now give... <coughs> Now give what the Lord Almighty, I'm sorry. Now this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. You earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. And then he goes on and on. Verse 12, then Zerubbabel and Joshua and all the people obeyed the Lord because they feared God and believed that he had sent him. Verse 13, God says, I am with you, declares the Lord. And so the Lord, <coughs> excuse me, so the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, the governor of Judah, and he stirred up the spirit of Joshua, the high priest, and he stirred up the spirit of the remnant of the people, and they began to work on the house of the Lord. Chapter 2, some famous passages that we hear. Be strong, Joshua. Be strong and work, for I am with you. I love that verse. Verse 4 of chapter 2. Just write this down and put it on your wall and make it your favorite Bible verse. Be strong. Be strong and work. Whoa! I mean, I know, we like the ones, be still and know that he is Lord, and that's in the Bible too. Just relax and release and let God do it. But this one says you've got something to do. And here is the prophet saying God wants to rebuild the temple. We're resettling the land and we need to put our shoulder to the plow and work. Be strong, be strong. I'm with you. Now get to work, boys. Verse 6. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake the nations, and what is desired of all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine. The glory of this present house will be greater than the former house, says the Lord Almighty. Now we know that actually it feels like in that physical house they made, nothing really happened. In their day and age, it probably felt like we did all of this, but the Shekinah glory that King Solomon talked about just never happened. And we, they wrestled with that. We get to live in the latter times where we look back and see how prophecy was fulfilled. And one of the things that we find all through Scripture is the word of the Lord is true, and we the people never understand the timing. God's word is true, and we never know the timing. And you see that over and over and over. Or you see where God's word is true and something did happen for their day and age. And yet, 
there was a lot more included that had to do with another time period that they were prophetically living into, not just speaking into. And that's true in our day too, that some of the things that God tells us to do might not always have the result that we think what we were expecting in the immediacy of our next couple of years. However, in the immediacy of their own life, God does promise them. Let's go to verse 19 at the end of chapter 2. And he had talked to them about how it was before that everything you tried, all your hard work didn't pay off. It just kept falling apart. And now he says, is there any seed left in the barn? Until now, the vine and the fig tree, the pomegranate and the olive tree have not borne fruit. But from this day on, I will bless you. And ongoing blessings after that. You'll have to read that yourself. Um, let's go on to the next page to Zechariah. When we come to Zechariah, scholars and all the scholars I've been reading find it very difficult to know how to organize the whole book. There's definitely two major sections, as I said before. There's chapters 1 to 8, and chapters 1 to 8 are very clearly dated according to the year of Darius, the month of Darius, so forth and so on. They're in exactly the same dates as Haggai. These two are together, exactly the same dates as Ezra. When you get to chapters 9 to 14, it's not dated. It's just all this beautiful stuff, and the dates aren't there. So I feel like, you know, you can read this and say this is about visions and angels and battles and mystery and maybe I'm reading Narnia right now. Maybe that's where he got these ideas from. But what do you do with it all? Sometimes you think you're reading Revelations or you're reading Daniel and the same kind of an issue. Like I'm reading through Daniel saying, what is all this about? And four different colors of horses and this angel talked to that angel and told that young man, is that young man so-and-so? Is that so-and-so? Is this who? You can get lost in all that stuff. Let me just cut to the point here. And I would encourage us, don't try to figure out when. Just take the book of Zechariah and learn something about who God is. And if you're, if you get close to, well, let me put it another way. If you're someday with a group of Christians where somebody has it all figured out and they know what every dappled red brown horse stands for, and they know exactly which nation of the north represents Russia or Ukraine today. If you're in that kind of a community sometime, you just need to put your hand and say, um, I don't know, but God's big. Because you know what? Nobody knows all that stuff. And over and over in scripture, these kind of things get fulfilled. And then at the time of fulfillment, the Holy Spirit reveals and they say, that's what the prophet Joel was talking about. That's what Zechariah was talking about. And so some of Zechariah we see in the New Testament. Let's just go to the next slide quickly. Here's a few, and there's more. The king coming on a lowly donkey. Of course, the triumphal entry. And those scriptures in the New Testament point back to it. They will look on the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. Revelations in John, the same words about Jesus. The nations are going to see what happened. But when Zechariah prophesied these things to the remnant who had come back out of Babylon and to the surrounding people who had kind of come back in from the countryside, do you think they understood it was about Jesus? No. What is that all about? There was a mystery there going on. 
I didn't put it on the screen, but the 30 pieces of silver, throw it to the potter, the handsome price that they paid for me. Jesus sold for 30 pieces of sil silver with Judas. Zechariah 13, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus quotes this to his disciples. You will all fall away, for it is written, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. On and on, we see these different passages in Zechariah fulfilled in the New Testament. But if you leave out the New Testament and you just read Zechariah, you will be hard-pressed to figure out the timing and who it's for and when it is. Is it about the fall of Jerusalem? Is it about the second coming of Jesus? Is it about the first coming of Jesus? Is it about the resurrection? And I just want to say, I didn't get every detail figured out before this sermon. But we did have an awesome wedding yesterday for John Schwartz, who married Paula, and that was a beautiful time. And this morning, we are going to come and sit under God's word. So turn to chapter 1 of Zechariah, and now let's just go, next screen, leave this one up for a bit. As we read through chapters 1 to 8, these kind of themes are coming through. The anger of God with the original fathers before they got deported to Babylon. And now, the anger of God on the nations who brought judgment but went too far. You see again and again in the Zechariah the intention that God has, I'm going to dwell with my people. I'm going to be with them. And there's going to be a harmony of both religious and civil government. Zerubbabel, the governor, representing the civil. Joshua, the high priest, representing the religious. And God is going to purify his people. Not we're going to fix ourselves up, but God is going to purify his people. And then all nations, not just Israelites, all nations will be blessed. All right. I've just underlined scriptures, and I'm going to skip through as we sit under God's word. Chapter 1. I'm reading from the New International Version, and the True Bible is written in Hebrew. So, if someone tells you King James only, you say, but I've got a German Bible. It doesn't have that. All right. We should have a lesson on translation someday, but... Your Bible will be close. Zechariah chapter 1. Here's some examples. Let's just learn what God is like as we sit under his word. Chapter 2. I'm sorry. Chapter 1, verse 2. Chapter 1, verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your ancestors. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord, and I will return to you. This is a section where he has eight different visions. Verse 8, here's one. I had a vision, and there before me was a man mounted on a red horse, standing among the myrtle trees in the ravine. Behind him were red, brown, and white horses. And I asked, what are these? Verse 11, the result of that was, the horses had gone through the earth and found the whole world at rest and at peace. But the interpretation of that was the, the way it's written in Hebrew isn't just that the whole world is at peace. It's that all of these nations who have ransacked Israel 70 years ago 
could care less. They're happy. They're prosperous in Babylon. And so the angel of the Lord says to the Lord, verse 12, Lord Almighty, how long will you withhold mercy from Jerusalem and from the towns of Judah with which you have been angry these 70 years? And so the Lord spoke kind and comforting words to the angel. We're at the end of 70 years. All the bad guys are at peace. And the angel is calling out for justice. And God is right there with him saying, yes. He goes on, verse 14. I am very jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. I'm angry with the nations who feel secure. I was only a little angry, but they went too far with their punishment. This is therefore what the Lord says. I will return to Jerusalem with mercy, and there will my house be rebuilt. You see something of the nature of God. And in your own life, if you go through times where you feel like, like Israel, we fell short, we were punished, and now I'm returning to God, but does he want me? Yes, he wants you. He's jealous for you. And he's angry about all the things that caused you to fall, all the things that robbed you of his peace. He has another vision, verse 18. Four horns. Throughout the Bible, the horns, like the horns of an animal, they use this term often to refer to different governments. You see this in Daniel and Ezekiel as well. But the horns, the other governments who ransacked Jerusalem. And he sees four horns and four craftsmen. And then he answers the end of verse 21. These are the horns that scattered Judah so that no one could raise their hand. But the craftsmen have come to terrify them and to throw down the horns that lifted up their horns against the land of Judah. Are you confused yet? Some craftsmen have come to deal with it and put things back together. Chapter 2, he has a vision of a measuring line in Jerusalem being measured. Look at verse 4. Run and tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people in it. Wow. Jerusalem is going to be such a great place because so many people are coming to God. There can't be walls around that. And yet, after this, Nehemiah built the wall. And so he's obviously talking about more than just the Jerusalem in physical Israel. Six, come, come, flee from the north. Seven, come, Zion, escape you who live in the daughter of Babylon. Ten, shout and be glad, daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will live among you, declares the Lord. Many nations will be joined with the Lord in that day and will become my people. I will live among you, and you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me. The Lord will inherit Judah as his portion, and the Holy Land will again choose Jerusalem. Be still before the Lord, all mankind, because he has roused himself from his holy dwelling. Chapter 3, the famous story of Joshua standing in filth. Joshua the high priest standing before the Lord, Satan standing there to accuse him. And the Lord said, Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord has chosen Jerusalem. Who has chosen Jerusalem? Rebuke you. Is not this man a burning stick stashed from the fire? 
Now Joshua was dressed in filthy clothes, and he stood before the angel, and the angel said to those who were standing before him, Take off his filthy clothes. See, I've taken away your sin, and I will put fine garments on you. And then Zachariah gets to be part of it. I said, hey, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head. I love that. Zachariah says, hey, angels, let's give him a turban too. And he does. Joshua, the high priest, actually was clothed in dirty clothes. He was not pure. Satan was right in his accusations. And often Satan is right in the accusations against you and me. And when those accusations come, you know what I do? I say, yes, Lord, it's true. Please wash me. Please cleanse me. Thank you for the blood of Jesus. Thank you that there's no accusation against me. There's no condemnation against me because I'm in Christ Jesus. All that stuff is true, but I'm not there anymore. I'm now in Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1 and 2. He has a vision of golden lampstands. And the result, chapter, or verse 6. This is the word of the Lord, not by might or by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. What is this mighty mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a level ground. And then he will bring out the capstone to shouts of God bless it, God bless it. The word of the Lord came to me. The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple, and his hands will complete it. And then you will know that the Lord Almighty has sent me to you. Something very much in their present time. Guys, 15 years ago, Zerubbabel laid the foundations. And you're going to see this completed soon. And then you're going to know that I really was a prophet of the Lord. Chapter 5. A vision of a flying scroll. It was missing the airplane towing it. It was just the scroll flying through the air. This huge scroll. And on the scroll are written two curses. On one side, verse 3, every thief is going to be banished. On the other side, everyone who swears falsely is going to be banished. And here we see evil being judged, expelled from the land. The next vision, a woman in a basket. Here's a big basket with a lead lid on it. They lift off the lid, and inside is a woman. Say, what is that? That's wickedness. Now, don't interpret this to mean the Bible says women are wicked. That's not what it says. Because the very next passage, two women with the Spirit of God in their wings lifts up the, ba the basket and hauls it off to Babylon to put it there away from God's land. And, of course, the symbolism of Babylon comes in in Revelations and other books as well. And so, verse 11, Off to the country of Babylon to build a house for it. When the house is ready, the basket will be set in its place. But what we find here is God judging evil and taking wickedness out of his land. Now we're back to four more horses in chapter 6. Are you lost yet? Four more horses, not quite the same color. Don't worry, they're different colors, but the same kind of a story. They're going throughout the land. The first time they went throughout the land and they found that nations were at peace, but God wasn't at peace. God was angry with those nations because they'd gone too far. This time, the horses go through the land and they find out that God is at peace because wickedness has been put out. Verse 7 of chapter 6. 
When the powerful horses went out, they were straining to go through the earth. And he said, go throughout the earth. So they went throughout the earth. And then he called to me, look, those going to the north country have given my spirit rest in the land of the north. And now God is at rest. Then there's a crown for Joshua. We're going to move on here. Chapter 7 and 8, some people from Bethel come to the prophet and they ask about fasting. Shall we fast? Shall we commemorate Lent like we've always done in the past? No, it wasn't Lent. Shall we fast like we've always done in the past at this certain time? In the fifth month, we mourn and we fast. Verse 4, And the word came to me, Ask all the people of the land and the priests, When you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months, all these past 70 years, was it really for me? And when you were eating and drinking and feasting, weren't you just doing it for yourself? These are not, are not these the words the Lord proclaimed earlier to the prophets, through the prophets, when Jerusalem and its surrounding teams were at rest and prosperous, and then when they were settled. And the word of the Lord came again. This is what the Lord Almighty says, administer true justice, show mercy, compassion, don't oppress the widow or the fatherless or the foreigner or the poor, don't plot evil against each other. Right back to the theme that all the prophets bring. God cares about justice. And God wants our actions to represent his justice. The whole point of fasting was not about some religious mantra that somehow gets you a good luck charm and gets God's favor. It was actually a foreshadowing of denying ourselves to help others. The intention of the fasting wasn't so much some religious ceremony to get God's favor, but it was a picture of how God wants us to live. And the feast that they had, it wasn't so much a religious feast that was going on, but a picture that God's plenty and God's joy is for everybody. And so his re the result of the people asking, should we continue to fast, was actually bring justice to the poor. It's interesting, just two days ago, I was talking to Dan Severson about this. Dan started a new job at uh, Union Gospel Mission, and I was asking how it's going and so forth and so on. And one of the things that Dan said is, I don't feel like most of us do enough for the poor. I don't feel like the church does enough for the poor. And that's one of the things that he's thinking about because of the new ministry that he's in. And that's a ministry that's actually shared by churches all over the Lower Mainland that together with all the churches, yes, the downtown east side is a mess, but God's people are everywhere. And the first graduate of Teen Challenge BC, John Harry, told me 25 years ago, I slept behind a dumpster at Main Street in Hastings for many years. And for many years, the Christians would come and give us sandwiches. And I would always pray the sinner's prayer. I got saved every day, man. Because, you know, if you pray the sinner's prayer, the new youth group or YWAM group or whoever it is, they give you an extra chocolate or they give you an extra sandwich. They really are, they're really happy about it. So I just said the sinner's prayer all the time. He says, and then one day it dawned on me. I was using them, but they were sincere. And then it dawned on me. It's only Christians who are doing this. What is it about their God? And that was his journey to find God after a few years of mocking and using Christian generosity. So God is interested in us 
not having religious fast, but actually denying ourselves to help others. Chapter 8, verse 2. I am very jealous for Zion. I'm burning with jealousy for her. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem, and Jerusalem will be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says once again. Men and women of ripe old age, like David and Linda Morrow, will sit in the streets of the Jerusalem, each of them with their cane in hand because of their age. <laughs> <laughs> just so you know David is still teaching school and keeping grade, grade 3 under control so, uh, and he's not using a cane yet kindergarten this week wow that's the career I wanted to have last year and the city streets will again be filled with boys and girls playing there amen Verse 9, now then hear these words, let your hands be strong so the temple may be rebuilt. Verse 11, but I will not deal with the remnant of the people like I did in the past. Verse 12, seed will grow well, the vine will yield its fruit, the ground will produce its crop, the heavens will drop their dew. I will give all these as an inheritance to the remnant of the people. Just as you, Judah and Israel, have been a curse among the nations, so now I will save you and you will be a blessing. Don't be afraid. Your hands will be strong. Verse 15. So now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Don't be afraid. Isn't that lovely? I love skipping over the punishment and the judgment and just reading the blessing. <laughs> when we read these stories, we have to read both. And we have to remember that, yes, we're reading blessing now, but this comes after the prophets we've been talking about in previous weeks, where the prophecy before the 70 years was, guys, you're forgetting me, you're doing your own thing, you're chasing after other gods, you're not honoring me, and you're going to be in trouble because of it. Life will not go well for you. And that is the story for us today, too, that the favor of God is always here in Christ Jesus. But if we reject Christ Jesus and we just say, I don't need a savior, I'm good enough on my own, I'll do my own thing, then God disciplines those he loves and life gets nasty for a while. On top of that, we have the whole council of scripture showing us that sometimes we're not in judgment, we're just caught in suffering and we just endure like Job did. And we're, there's times in our life like that too. But right now, we're reading about this restoration time. We go from the fast and the questions about fasting to the feast, verse 19 of chapter 8. Then the word of the Lord says, The fasts of the fourth and fifth and seventh months will become joyful and glad occasions. Happy festivals for Judah, block parties for the neighborhood, celebrating a hundred years of what God has been doing in your life. That's what we're doing soon. Many peoples and many inhabitants of the many cities will yet come. Inhabitants of one city will go to another, and they will all say, let's go up and entreat the Lord. Let's seek the Lord Almighty. I'm going. I myself is going. And many people, powerful nations, will come to seek the Lord. Skipping ahead. We're running out of time here. 
Chapter 9, we should be on the next slide now. Chapter 9, we see the themes of sometimes the God's impatience with the flock. We see the theme of God giving victory to Judah. We see him promising again to be their God. He's going to provide a humble and righteous king, and all the nations are going to be blessed. And chapters 9 to 14 is especially the ones that they're not dated according to the temple building of Ezra's time. We don't actually know when they're spoken or when they were written. And yet, they're full of these beautiful pictures of who God is. And they're quoted all over the New Testament. Chapter 9, verse 9, you will probably recognize this one. Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on the colt, the foal of a donkey. And of course, Jesus rode into Jerusalem a week before his crucifixion, just like that. Verse 16, chapter 9, 16. The Lord God will save his people on that day as a shepherd saves his flock. On that day, the day of him riding in, victorious, crucified, putting sin, pay, payment for sin, winning the uh, fight over the grave and being raised from the dead. On that day, the Lord will save the people. Chapter 10, verse 1. Ask the Lord for rain in the springtime. It is the Lord who sends the thunderstorms. He gives showers of rain to all people and, he, and plants of the field to everyone. Verse 3, my anger burns against the shepherds. I will punish the leaders. The Lord Almighty will care for his flock. And we see that again in Ezekiel and other prophets as well, where the human shepherds, the priests and prophets and pastors of today fail and fall short. But God will shepherd you and be your, your leader. Verse 6, I will strengthen Judah and I will save the tribes. I will restore them because I have compassion on them. End of chapter 11, story of two shepherds. You have to go into that another time. But then the famous passage, uh, verse 12, I told them, if you think it best, give me my pay, but if not, keep it. And so they paid me 30 pieces of silver. And the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the handsome price at which they valued me. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver and I threw it to the potter at the house of the Lord. We see that again in Jesus' day. Chapter 12, moving on to chapter 12, verse 10. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and supplication, and they will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for me as one mourns for an only child. They will grieve bitterly for him as one grieves. On that day, weeping in Jerusalem, the land will mourn, each one by itself. They're mourning because they recognize that Jesus was the Messiah. We see that quoted again in Revelations 1-7 and John chapter 19. But on that day, the day that we recognize our Messiah, chapter 13, on that day, a fountain will be opened. A fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. That fountain has been opened. On that day of Jesus, a fountain was opened to cleanse you from sin and impurity. 
If you're here today and you think you're a loser, you think you're sinful, you think you've failed God, let me tell you, you're right. It's true. That's who we are. And the good news is a fountain has been opened and we stand under the grace of God and he washes away our guilt. And he receives us not because we got our act together, but because he paid for it. And now with that acceptance, we have a father who leads us into a better way of living. And we have less of the garbage that we had before, but we still are not God. And we still are not in heaven. And we still fall short. And he keeps cleansing us. He opens this cleansing fountain over top of us. Verse 7 Awake, sword, against my shepherd, against the man close to me. Strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. And you get pulled back and forth in Zechariah from this awesome stuff to this horrible stuff, going, what is going on? And of course, Jesus quoted that. He said to his disciples, you're going to be scattered. Peter says, no, no, if they all fall away, I'm following you. Nope, you're going to deny me three times. Nope, nope, not going to happen. Don't tell Jesus what's not going to happen. You might get it wrong. Chapter 14, a day is coming, Jerusalem, when your possessions will be plundered. Oh, not again. And then we go into all this bad stuff that's going to happen, and I don't know when it happened. Maybe it's the fall of Jerusalem after Jesus. But anyway, let's go back to the good stuff. Verse 8, chapter 14, verse 8. And on that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem, half of it to the east, to the Dead Sea, and half of it to the west, in summer and winter, the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day, there will be one Lord, his name, the only name. He alone is God. He alone is Lord. Verse 12, and then he will strike the nations with a plague, the ones who fought against Jerusalem. And verse 16, then the survivors from all the nations that attacked Jerusalem the survivors will go up year after year to worship the Lord and to celebrate his festivals. Verse 20, And on that day, holy to the Lord will be inscribed on the bells of the horses and on the cooking pots and on the sacred bowls. Verse 21, Every pot will be holy to the Lord, so forth and so on, and there won't be any bad guys there anymore. The book of Zechariah. All kinds of beautiful things all kinds of judgment and anger things. But through it all, we get the message that God is jealous for his people. He loves us. And he is the one that gives us this fountain of cleansing, this freedom from sin. He is the one who is making it happen in that day and continues to make it happen for us. So church, when you read Zechariah, when you read Haggai, yes, you're reading about something during the rebuilding time of Ezra, but it was fulfilled in Jesus, and it's still being walked out in our life. God bless you.